Hello and welcome to Queer as Fact, the podcast bringing you queer history from around the world and throughout time. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Jason. And today we're talking about the so-called Two Maidens of Pompeii. I have some content warnings before we begin this episode. This episode will include mentions of slavery, mentions of sex work, discussions of death in volcanic eruption, discussions of historic and modern sexism and queerphobia, and also explicit mentions of sex and some swearing in quotes. Before we get started, I want to mention that this isn't the episode we plan to bring out today. Eli has unexpectedly gone interstate. He will be back in time for our next episode, but he's not here today to present the episode that we planned, which means this has been a very last minute episode to put together. Because of that, I do want to acknowledge that I researched this exclusively last night, that being Friday, the episode coming out on Monday. So there are things that I normally would have looked into in more depth that I didn't have time to look into for this episode. That said, I don't think I'm telling you anything that's incorrect. I just mean that there are aspects that I would have researched more thoroughly and probably, you know, aspects that I would have explored in more depth that I didn't because of the time. We'll try not to ask you any difficult questions. <laughs> you can ask me difficult questions, but probably the thing I'm most likely to have overlooked is scholars who have, like, written about this topic before. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I'm less likely to be missing facts than I am to be missing, you know, this scholar wrote this paper, which has already said all of this that I just didn't read. Okay. okay. Yeah. I also want to thank B on Twitter, who helped me out with understanding some of the Italian that I needed for this episode. Very last minute. Much Good appreciated. Job, so I assume that most of our listeners and you two would have heard of Pompeii, but I'm going to give a brief introduction of what Pompeii is for those of you who haven't. Pompeii was an ancient Roman city on the southwest coast of Italy. It had a population of about 20,000 people and it was an important Roman seaport. I looked up Australian cities with an equivalent population so I could get an idea. The equivalent kind of Victorian city of that size I found was Wangaratta. <laughs> okay. That's going to mean something to you two and nobody else listening to this podcast. Please I will... please send through your local city that matches up to the population <laughs> of Pompeii. Yeah. I will choose to imagine, like, either Wangaratta just transplanted into Italy or Pompeii just transplanted into Victoria. I think Wangaratta in ancient Rome is better. I like Pompeii on the Murray, though. Yeah. Maybe <laughs> we can just do a swap. And then I guess the town of Wangaratta has to, like, get together and organize an evacuation because they know what's going to happen. Yeah. You can write this book, Irene, and then Eli and I will scathingly review it. <laughs> <laughs> It's gay between the, the town mayor of Wangaratta and the town mayor of Pompeii. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> okay, so in 79 CE, Mount Vesuvius, which is a volcano quite close to Pompeii, erupted and buried the city in rock and ash, killing thousands of its inhabitants. So, like, what portion of the Pompeii population do we know? We don't know exact numbers. They found the remains of about 1,500 people in Pompeii and Herculaneum, which is another city that was buried by the eruption of Mount Vesuvius. But obviously that's not every single body that is buried there. There will be many others that they will probably never find, or they're still excavating so that they will still find. And also, obviously, there's going to be people who died, whose bodies were found and taken away at the time. So there were also evacuation attempts at the time. So a lot of people would have gotten away at the time, or would have been not necessarily in the city, but somewhere in the surrounding countryside, but still would have been killed in the eruption. Mm. But if you're just excavating the city rather than an unpopulated area in the countryside, you won't find those people. Were there, like, 
death toll records at the time? Not that I'm aware of, but there might have been. Okay, we just don't have them. I mean, we may even have them. As I said, I didn't have time to look into everything as in-depth as I would have normally, so there may be death toll records, but as far as I understand it, we can't put a number on it. Okay. Hmm. Conveniently for us as historians, one of the people who was nearby when the eruption took place was the Roman writer Pliny the Younger. He was staying in the nearby town of Mycenae. And he provided an eyewitness account of what happened while his family was fleeing the eruption. He writes, I turned around and saw a thick black cloud advancing over the land behind us like a flood. The darkness spread over us. But it was not the darkness of a moonless or cloudy night, but it was just as if the lamps had been put out on a completely closed room. We could hear women shrieking, children crying, and men shouting. Some were calling for their parents, their children, or their wives, and trying to recognize them by their voices. Many begged for the help of the gods, but even more imagined that there were no gods left and that the last eternal night had fallen on the world. I could boast that I never expressed any fear at this time, but I was only kept going by the consolation that the whole world was perishing with me. That is so goth. <laughs> Just like, oh my god, please calm down. He's got an eruption. Leave him alone. But that's what made him feel better, though. He was like, literally, the whole world's ending, not just me. Okay, that's fine. I can deal with that. (laughs) Like, I feel like I would feel the reverse thing, you know? I guess it's kind of like there's nothing I can do element. It's not like, oh, no, how will I save my family? How will we get out of this? It's just like the world's ending. Yeah. Cool. But also, like, like, he's writing this afterwards. Yeah, Yeah. he wrote this, like, a number of years later. Yeah. So, like, you know, obviously, I don't blame him for experiencing strong emotions in the face of this situation but he's writing this afterwards and he chose to make it be incredibly traumatic (laughs) (laughs) that's That's good writing jason (laughs) (laughs) would he or would the people around him who were also screaming and praying would they have had a clear understanding of what was happening i don't think so so they knew in the decades leading up to the eruption there'd been quite a lot of earthquakes there'd been a particularly big one i think about 15 years before the eruption and the city was still kind of rebuilding from that So they were aware of earthquakes in the area, but from what I know, they hadn't had a major eruption in a long time. So Pliny talks about how they could see the fires on the mountain and they understood that something was burning up there, like the mountain was on fire. They didn't understand that it was lava coming up from inside the mountain. Okay. And he talks about how they saw the cloud of ash and they understood it was coming from the mountains, but it was only later that they realized it was coming out of Mount Vesuvius. Okay. Yeah. So they didn't really know at the time that it was a volcano and that it was a volcanic eruption. I think that's something they kind of pieced together after the fact. That said, I don't really know, even once they put together that, you know, this had come out of Mount Vesuvius, how well they understood what a volcano is and, like, what that meant. Or whether they were just like, well, our mountains certainly mysteriously exploded. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And then, you know, spent the next... The rest of their lives being like, mm, do mountains, mountains. Just do that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they just leave Italy to find somewhere with fewer mountains after that. <laughs> I don't know. They did never rebuild at Pompeii, as far as I'm aware. Definitely not in any kind of large scale city. Yeah, and the speed with which it was covered by the ash and debris from the volcano meant that it was incredibly well preserved, which is convenient for archaeologists. So modern archaeological excavations of the site began in the 1700s, and they're continuing today. So 
in the years between the eruption and the 1700s, yeah. did everyone just kind of ignore Pompeii? Were there people going and digging around in there and we just don't have records of it? Or There were definitely people digging around in there. So there were definitely disturbances of the remains before 1700. And there are records up to about the year 400, which are obviously still aware that there was a city there and it had been destroyed. Between 400 and I think a bit earlier than the 1700s, it does seem to have been forgotten. So there's references, for example, to people finding things that say Pompeii on them and thinking they must refer to Pompey, like the Roman general. Oh, okay. Who existed at the time of Caesar, rather than a town that had a similar name. Surely, I guess maybe, unless you're like a Latin scholar, you wouldn't have come across it in texts or anything. Yeah, yeah. So I'm sure like some people would have been aware of it. And I think when they did find it again, and I don't know in great detail how this happened, but I understand when they found it again, it was more going, oh, so this is Pompeii, rather than going, oh, what's this mysterious buried city? Oh, I kind of Oh, okay, we found Pompeii. So I think there were people who knew there was a city that had been destroyed and they just didn't necessarily know where that city was or anything. Okay. Mm. Yeah. So it's not like it was mysteriously forgotten. It was just... They didn't know where it was anymore. Yeah. And it wasn't a major focus. Like they didn't have archaeology as we have now in the year 1100, for example. Yeah. People weren't going and digging up ruins in the same way that we do Mm. or that people in the 1700s did. Yeah. 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 So one aspect of the site at Pompeii, which is quite unique to a volcanic site and maybe unique to these sites, I haven't heard of them doing it elsewhere, but they might do, is that many of the people were buried in ash and what they would have died from was both the heat of the ash and the suffocation of being buried in ash. Their bodies deteriorated, but by that time the ash had solidified so that there was a cavity left in the ash in the shape of their body. And once the archaeologists in the 1800s realized this, what they do is they drill down holes into the cavity and pour plaster into those holes before they excavated around the cavity so they'd be left with a plaster cast in the shape of the person who had died under the ash. That's very morbid, but very cool. It is. It is very cool, yeah. They did have the Pompeii exhibition here. Yeah. Like, years ago now. Yeah, they were here in Melbourne probably five or ten years ago, yeah. Yeah, and I remember it being, like, quite a visceral thing to see. Yeah, like, you can still see their faces on some of them and, like, the clothes they're wearing and everything. Yeah, I didn't see that exhibition, but I have, like, seen images and Mm. video footage of these plaster casts and... Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it is quite confronting. Yeah. 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 No, I remember there was a content warning on that section of the exhibition that was like, this is a lot to look at. Be aware. You're not actually seeing a corpse, but you will feel like you are. Yeah. Yeah. You're not seeing a corpse, but you're getting closer to seeing a corpse from 2,000 years ago than you ever will in any other setting. Mm. Yeah. So even though the bodies had deteriorated... The skeletons and things like jewellery and so forth did remain in these cavities that were filled with plaster. So these plaster casts, although as you said, they're not corpses, they do have human remains inside them, which leads us to the topic of this episode. So in 1914, a cast was made of two individuals who were found in the garden of a Pompeii house. In their final moments, they'd been embracing one with their head on the other's chest. We don't know much about them as people. But in his excavation report at the time, archaeologist Vittorio Spinazzola described one of them as having legs with full and tender feminine contours. I'm just thinking about the John Mulaney sketch where it's like... It's weird because, and like, full disclosure, I don't speak Italian. I learned it in primary school so I can say, like, the colours. (laughs) 
very useful in this situation. Yes. But I read an English translation and I looked at the Italian and I've studied Latin. I know enough about Romance languages to like understand Italian with English beside it. And it's generally quite a impersonal description. So one of the things that be on Twitter pointed out to me was that he generally uses quite gender neutral language to talk about them. He doesn't really say whether they're male or female, that kind of thing. But then he just throws in that they've got these feminine legs. <laughs> Is it possible that he was just describing the shape of the legs and that's the word that he yeah. chose to use? It might be. That might be that that was the best word he had to describe the shape of what yeah. he was seeing. Uh. Did he say anything about both of them or was it just one that had the full intent of feminine curves or whatever it was just one it was just one that he said had full intent of feminine legs so possibly influenced by what spinazzola said as well as the fact that they were both wearing rings which was normal for men and women in ancient rome but it was considered more feminine in the 20th century wearing rings has been normal for men the whole time though i mean like now for example you're much more likely to see a woman wearing a ring with like a stone on it or anything like that than you are a man wearing anything except a wedding ring oh i guess yeah that's true yeah 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 so they were wearing rings they had full and tender feminine legs according to spinazzola and they um, were also embracing in their final moments, which was generally kind of talked about at the time as a feminine thing to do. The understanding grew that they were two young women, and for almost 100 years they were known as the two maidens of Pompeii. The idea of embracing someone when you're literally about to die being a gendered thing to do <laughs> is just insane. That is the most toxically masculine idea. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Just like, fellas, is it gay to embrace when you're about to die? <laughs> yeah. 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 Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like that's a, a key point. A key takeaway from this episode is that it's not gay for anyone to embrace when they're about to die. Anyone can embrace when they're about to die. I think anyone can embrace at any time as long as they have the consent of the person they are yeah. embracing. That's true. That's true. <laughs> So, in 2017, CAT scans allowed scientists to analyze the skeletons that were inside the plaster casts, and this, along with DNA analysis, led them to the conclusion that the two maidens were much more likely to have been two men. I'll include the disclaimer that, obviously, there's much more to being a man than what your skeleton looks like or what your DNA is. There's a variety of intersex variations that could lead to someone, for example, having XY chromosomes, but a vulva and breasts and being generally seen by their society as a cis woman. There's also trans people. I don't know, you know, what life might have been like for a trans person in Pompeii, but I think we have to assume that people existed. But understanding did shift in public and archaeological discussion from seeing them as two women to seeing them as two men. So when was this? This is in 2017. All right, so very recent. Very recently, yeah. Skeletal analysis suggested that one was about 18 and the other was about 20 or a bit older. And analysis of their mitochondrial DNA showed that they weren't biologically related. Okay, so this is queer as fact. We talk about queer history. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're here for, yeah. Do we have any reason to think that these two might be gay other than that they hugged each other in a natural disaster? No. They so they literally could have just been two people on the street who, like, ran into each other and were like, looks like we're both going to die. I would like some human comfort. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So what we're going to talk about in this episode is less, were these two people gay? Because I've told you every single fact we know about them now. So the answer is, we don't know and we will never know. So what we're going to talk about is more how this was received by the media in 2017 okay. and how it's kind of changed how we talk about these two people. 
and how that relates to what we know about Roman sexuality and just how we in the modern day talk about the sexuality of people in the past. Sounds fun. Sounds good. Yeah, we're doing some media analysis. Welcome to my world. <laughs> the media is just a plaster cast of two people from Pompeii. Oh, well, no. No, we're I analyzing mean, the media. Yeah, you're oh. analyzing the media response to something. Yeah. That's true. Yeah, the media is the Telegraph article that broke this story in 2017. Ah, I see. That we all saw on Tumblr. <laughs> I'm sure we all saw this on Tumblr. Yeah, so the story was broken by the Telegraph, the UK newspaper, in 2017, with the headline... Embracing figures at Pompeii could have been gay lovers after a scan reveals they are both men. So, I have several questions here. Yes. One, before the scan, we thought they were both women. Yeah, women could still have been gay lovers. Women can't be gay. We will talk about that in some depth later on. (laughs) But, yeah, that's a very obvious flaw in this whole conversation. And the way this has been talked about for a hundred years since they were found. They were like, women. Any women could hug at any time. Men hugging. That's gay lovers. Yeah, I mean, that's toxic masculinity for you, basically, yeah. Yeah. Women hugging because they're about to die, of course, that's what you do. Men hugging, even when they're about to die, that's gay. Society is so goddamn weird. (laughs) So weird. Yeah. Like, the, the Telegraph, in that case, could literally put out articles about this every day, where they just, like, plucked random pictures of men from history and were like, may have been gay lovers. You're right. I do think it is kind of funny that we simultaneously, and I think we're right to be annoyed about this nonsense history being reported by the Telegraph. We simultaneously have to be angry that they saw these two men embracing and were immediately like, yep, that's gay lovers. Only reason men would hug. And at the same time, we're often faced with these things where it's like, yeah, these two men were buried in a grave together. I'm thinking of the ancient Egyptian example of Nyanknum and Knumhotep. Buried in a grave together with like art of them embracing throughout the tomb. They were probably just friends. Yeah. No, I feel the same thing. You sort of have to contend at the same time with this thing where so much queer history is just, like, flat-out dismissed or erased. Like, people see, you know, obvious love letters, and they're like, oh, what good friends, kind of Yeah, yeah. And then this other thing where people are ready to call something, like, gay absolutely for certain, with no evidence. Which is not to say, obviously, that you need evidence to consider the possibility that someone is gay. But I think there's a difference between, like, considering the possibility that two historical figures might be gay and, like, assuming that as a certainty. Yeah, and also following the evidence in an illogical way. Like, here's two women embracing. Okay, whatever. Oh, they're men. Therefore, it might be gay. Like, Obviously, there's some logical fallacies at work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I mean, you know, we've already kind of mentioned this, but, you know, this is this very clearly comes along gender lines a lot mm. of the time, right? Where, like, mm. you know, very obvious displays of romantic affection between women are dismissed as yeah. them just being friends, whereas much less strong evidence between men is often seen as evidence of homosexuality. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think that often especially comes, like, I think in a scholarly setting, you're... And obviously, I don't mean to generalise and say all scholars are homophobes. There's a lot of good queer scholarship out there. But I think in a scholarly setting, you're more likely to see the denial of queerness at all costs. And in a kind of popular media setting, you're more likely to see, like, jumping to it straight away because it makes a good headline. 
Yeah, that's fair to say. Yeah, like, mm. embracing figures at Pompeii are men. That's not a headline. Like, whatever, there's lots of men in Pompeii. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, presumably half of people embracing at Pompeii are, <laughs> are men. Yeah. Yeah. Partially this is the kinds of media releases that get written by underfunded historical departments. Yeah, because they need to get the funding and therefore they need to write things that will get attention. public attention. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, yeah. like, you know, this isn't just sensationalising on the part of journalists. Yeah. It's sensationalising on the part of historians who have to be journalists. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. In order to yeah. get funding and get their area of history looked at and get people donating to them. And yeah. I mean, like, you see this in, like, every area of research constantly. Absolutely. Like, you see this in science articles all the time that are like, we have cured cancer, cure for cancer. And when you read the article, they're like, so we ran an experiment which may or may not have statistically significant effects on some rats. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, the Telegraph didn't pull this headline out of nowhere either. They quote from the director of excavations, Massimo Asana, who is a professor of archaeology, who said the fact that they were lovers is a hypothesis that cannot be dismissed. I mean, Which I is guess such a weaselly quote. Yeah, that means nothing, you know. I guess he's technically right. There's <laughs> no reason to throw out the possibility that these people were lovers. There's just also no reason to throw out the possibility that these people were a shopkeeper and a, you know customer who just happened to be standing there doing a deal when this went down. <laughs> and they just embraced. They were in the garden of a house. Okay. But, yeah. you know, people, and we can see this from where people's remains were found in Pompeii, most people ran inside to shelter yeah. when ash and fire started falling from the sky. So Normal thing to do. Even yeah. if it wasn't your house, you'd run inside it. Yeah. Yeah. Fellas, is it gay to seek shelter from ash falling <laughs> from the sky? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say for The Telegraph that the headline is less sensationalizing than it could have been. Like, it, it doesn't make any concrete statements. It is also technically a yeah. correct <laughs> yeah. statement. They could have been gay. They could have been gay lovers. They didn't say are gay lovers or gay lovers found in Pompeii or anything. They said, yeah. you know. See, that second one is much more what I would have expected. Yeah. 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 And that would have sold. And, you know, I'm sure I don't have anything written down in front of me, but I did read a lot of random news outlets and the way they talked about this. And I'm sure there were some headlines that got rid of those caveats and just of went, those you know, like maybe gay lovers in Pompeii. Yeah. 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 So, all that said, I do want to talk a bit now about Roman sexuality and how the image of gay lovers that the newspaper mm -hmm. wants to give us fits in with Roman sexuality. I remember we had an episode on this once when we had the Julius Caesar episode. Yeah. So, we've done quite a few ancient Roman episodes. And if you do want a long introduction to ancient Roman sexuality, we do have an episode that's literally just like male, male sexuality in ancient Rome. We are going to talk today a bit more about female sexuality in ancient Rome as well. So you will learn some new things Hooray. that aren't in that episode. But if you do want to learn more about Roman sexuality, you can go listen to that episode. And if you really like Roman sexuality, you can also listen to our episodes on Julius Caesar and Nero. Oh, and the Warren Cup. Oh, yes. For your brief intro to Roman sexuality that I feel like we just have to do like yearly on this podcast. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> should just pre-record it. I should. I literally was just like, oh yeah, I got that written down. Copy, paste. That's <laughs> oh, not okay. true. I did so that, like, fair. you know, edited and stuff. But, yeah, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, the general understanding of Roman male sexuality is that it centers around phallic penetration. And as long as you're the one doing the penetrating, you're all good and you can still be a manly Roman man. But if you're the one being penetrated and you are 
a man, that's emasculating and not something that's appropriate for a male Roman citizen. And there were even some legal sanctions on Roman men who allowed themselves to be penetrated. Male-male relationships were only considered appropriate, therefore, when they were between a Roman citizen and a slave, or a Roman citizen and a foreigner, or a Roman citizen and a sex worker. And I will say that Roman sources don't talk that much about the relationships that might have been happening between like two slaves or two sex workers or two foreigners, or any other crossing between those classes of people. Because Romans just talk about themselves. <laughs> <laughs> but we will talk a bit more about people who aren't members of the Roman elite or don't fit the molds put out by the Roman elite yeah. in a minute. But the key point I wanted to make about Roman understandings of sexuality was it doesn't leave much room, at least amongst Roman citizens, for the kind of equal relationships that media outlets are kind of implying when they say, we found embracing gay lovers in Pompeii. I feel like this is something you see a lot in general in sort of popular understandings of, like, classical Greece and Rome, Mm. where you see around a lot this idea that, you know, ancient Greece was a gay utopia. It was just totally fine to be gay. Yeah. And and then similarly with Rome. People take our modern understanding of our gay or male-male relationship, which is two men who are equals and love each other. And put that back then as the thing that was okay. Yeah, when in actual fact, the Mm. thing that was okay is often, like, it was okay to have penetrative sex with someone of, like, lower social status than you in certain ways. Yeah, absolutely. Provided that you penetrate them. Yeah. So we are very lucky in Pompeii, because of how well it's preserved, that unlike most other Roman sites, we do get a huge amount of graffiti that has been preserved that gives us an insight into Roman life beyond what we generally read about Rome, which is what we find in kind of high-class texts written by the elite. What form does this graffiti take? So a lot of the walls in Rome were plastered, so they'd scratch it into the plaster. Okay. And sometimes it's painted on as well, but most of it is scratched into plaster. Okay, so it's so well preserved that we can still see paint that's been done over the Yeah, yeah, yeah. You wow, can, that's really cool. You can see, like, full artworks that are just on walls in Pompeii. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's very cool. I would like to go to Pompeii. I guess, today. like, I kind of understood that, but just for some reason applying it to the field of painted graffiti on <laughs> yeah. the wall just seems so silly. But, like, that's so cool. Yeah, that's one of the things that Pompeii is very famous for, is that it just has huge amounts of graffiti. Hmm. And um, huge amounts of those graffiti are about sex, because that's what graffiti is it's about. Like, <laughs> do you think maybe that's partially because, I, I know you said earlier that there was an earthquake 15 years before the eruption, and yeah. the city was still rebuilding. So do you think there was, like, like it was not a fully inhabited city, and therefore it was really easy to do graffiti <laughs> everywhere? It was, like, construction sites everywhere. So graffiti in Rome isn't, like illegal in the same way graffiti is here. Mm. So, like, some of the graffiti, for example, will be, like, electoral things saying, you know, vote for Marcus in the next Mm. election. Mm. Or it'll be, like, ads for events, like, rather than having a poster, like, under a bridge, like we would have, they'd just get a stick and scratch it under the bridge. That's pretty great. So, it doesn't have the same connotations of, like, being in a dodgy neighbourhood or being illegal that it does here. Okay, okay. And you'll also find graffiti inside houses, like, a lot of graffiti inside people's houses, which oh, is yeah. not a thing that we have. Yeah. Well, yeah. I wouldn't say that that's true. I mean, for example, there's not writing all over the wall of this room, whereas if we were in Rome, there would be. Yeah, okay. Even <laughs> if you rented the house in Rome, yeah, would your landlord be mad about it? I'm not sure that this is the case, but what I have read and what I think kind of makes sense is that if you have a kind of whitewashed plaster wall, 
You just redo that all the time. Oh, okay. Mm. So it really just wouldn't matter because so you assume that you were like painting it again next year. Anyway. Yeah, it's not a big deal to scratch something into your wall in that situation. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Well, I am just thinking of like family homes where people like mark the yeah. hearts of their children and things like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I guess like, that's that kind a, of thing. That's a reasonably common thing. It's just not a common thing for us and our friends because most of us don't own homes. Yeah, we don't live in our yeah. family homes. But yeah, no, that's true. That's true. So there have been debates about the levels of literacy in Pompeii and who exactly would have been doing this graffiti some people have argued that you know like wow everyone in Pompeii must have been able to read and write because there's just writing everywhere and some people have argued that most of this graffiti was done by upper class men obviously as with most things I think the truth is somewhere between those two there's definitely graffiti that is written by women and slaves or at least is written like in the voice of women and slaves and I think the most logical assumption is that it was written by them there's also I think a huge like sort of in between space in literacy that people don't consider a lot it's not like you can't read or write at all or you're like completely literate and you're writing like lengthy essays and things like that there are a whole lot of people in between who are like perfectly capable of writing you know i had sex with a hot man here yeah yeah but they're not writing the kind of elite texts absolutely and like the other thing i was going to say which is exactly what you're saying is a lot of this graffiti has a lot of spelling and grammar errors which you know you probably wouldn't see in writing by an elite highly educated person yeah but you know this person can read and write they can't spell perfectly yeah but we can understand what they're saying so that tends to indicate more that it was there was widespread some literacy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, you know, that doesn't mean everyone was... I was about to say reading Shakespeare. <laughs> it does not make <laughs> no sense. No one was reading Shakespeare. In reading Pliny or whatever. Context. Yeah, reading, yeah, reading yeah. Pliny the Elder, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, as I said, a lot of the graffiti in Pompeii is sexual and about the various types of sex that ancient Romans were having. And it does largely align with what I've already said about how Romans understood male sexuality. So we see a lot of insulting graffiti referring to men with the word canidus. We discussed at length in our episode on Roman sexuality how you should translate canidus in English, and we decided you shouldn't. But (laughs) (laughs) generally it's a word that has, like, connotations of, like, femininity, of playing a passive role in sex – Oh, a lack of self-control, which Romans considered self-control to be a very important manly Roman trait. Is this because they were extremely into the military? I think all these things are tied together, yeah. Yeah, okay, carry on. (laughs) I would say that's a factor. So yeah, there's no English equivalent of the word, but one translation which I saw that is not perfect but I think gives the general gist is pansy. Oh, yeah. So although you often just see it translated as homosexuality, it specifically implies, like, a lack of masculinity. Mm. Is it necessarily an insult? Yes. Okay. We also find a lot of non-insulting graffiti about male-male sex that just depicts the sort of interactions we talked about before. So it's men generally boasting about their act of penetrative role in sex or just talking, you know, factually about the sex they've had. Are you sure that they're talking factually and not boasting then? Oh, yeah. I mean, when I say talking factually, I don't mean that I believe that all these men who scrawled on a wall had the exact sex they're telling me. I mean, that is kind of being like, there's one, for example, that says like, Pedicawi and then the Roman numeral six, which literally just means I fucked someone in the ass six times. Okay. Like, that's the kind of thing I'm talking yeah. about. <laughs> Do you think this guy came back here and, like, kept telling? <laughs> it is the Roman numeral, not a tally mark. Ah, So, unfortunately... <laughs> Every time I do a Rome episode, I'm like, how can I translate this in, like, a non-crass way? And then I'm like, no. It just loses no. the vibe. And also they have such specific words for sex that you can't translate them correctly without getting crass. 
Yeah. Um, like, I guess you could say, like, I anally penetrated. <laughs> but imagine if people wrote, I anally penetrated on the wall. Yeah, that's not the vibe of that graffiti. Yeah. No. I definitely think this is a thing that happens to Latin specifically, because mm. it's for so long for, like, English language speakers being seen as, like, a, like, high class or educated language that even, like, you know, Latin, like, slang or Latin, like crass latin stuff yeah. about sex gets translated in ways that are like defecated penetrated yeah yeah you know? yeah absolutely it just like very much sort of divorces people from the possibility of like ordinary ancient romans yeah absolutely i did read an interesting thing which said when they first excavated pompeii starting in the 1700s and into the 1800s and they first started discovering this graffiti they kind of didn't know what to do because their image, these were these upper-class European men mm. who were doing the excavations, their image of Rome was kind of the aspirational classical culture where it was all white marble statues and elite men writing complicated sentences that go for ten pages. And then they started digging these things up and there was just – there's pictures of people having sex everywhere. There's crude graffiti everywhere. And I'm talking mostly about graffiti that is writing because – we are a verbal medium <laughs> yeah. but there's a lot of you know just pictures of dicks on the walls oh and yeah things like that and they just kind of didn't know how to process this in their image of what rome was that is really interesting given that part of what we're talking about in this episode is the ways in which we're applying modern standards yeah, of yeah. homosexuality onto ancient peoples but then also you kind of got the reverse problem there of n- not being able to compute the idea that ancient peoples were at all like modern people. Yeah, yeah. When you've put ancient people up on a pedestal and something like, oh, they also just had sex and threw dicks on walls, then Mm. you have to recalibrate what you think about ancient people. Mm. And, like, obviously that's a generalisation, and there were men in the 1700s who I'm sure had read some of the dirty Roman poetry that's out there and, you know, were gay themselves and (laughs) went, oh, yeah, you would do that, wouldn't you? Yeah. But that was the general vibe. Mm Mm-hmm. So there are a few pieces of graffiti that don't necessarily align with this understanding that being penetrated was incredibly shameful for Roman men and, for example, something that they would never admit to or never do. These pieces of graffiti, as far as I'm aware, we don't actually know the gender of the people who wrote them, but there's a few of them, and I think it's safe to assume that some were written by men. Okay. And they talk about being penetrated in sex without any suggestion that it's, like, shameful or degrading. It's quite factual. So one, for example, reads, I lick Pyramus' dick every day. That's it. That's the piece of graffiti. All and right. we have, like, quite a few others that are just that kind of, like, factual statements of, like, this is what I do. I like the way it's every day. Like, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Good for you, I guess. I should mention, which I don't think I've mentioned here, that the Roman understanding of oral sex is that the person that we would consider the active person, the one Doing, giving head, yeah. is considered the passive partner in Rome because their mouth is being penetrated. Yeah. No, that makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> it makes sense in their conception. Yeah. If you understand sex as the penis penetrates something. And there are other similar pieces of graffiti that refer to someone playing what Romans consider the passive role in anal sex. Yeah. And mm. they just very factually state, you know, I did this, I liked this, that kind of thing. Okay. Cool. Um, so some people at least were enjoying this. Yeah. And we don't know their genders, but probably did, multiple. Yeah, and yeah. they did not have internal shame about it, even though society was to some extent shaming people. Yeah, this. or at least if they had internal shame, like they overcome that enough that it was something they were going to write on a wall. Hmm. And um, Craig Williams, who is a scholar of Roman sexuality, describes these pieces of graffiti as statements in which men and women claim for themselves the receptive role defiantly, triumphantly. 
Yeah, I think that's fair. And he yeah. notes that this voice is otherwise pretty much entirely absent from the Latin literature tradition, and we don't have examples of people talking about themselves taking what was considered the passive role in sex. I guess it's probably worth considering that, like, taking the passive role in sex was also degrading for a woman. Ancient Roman understandings of women were just such that being degraded was not an issue. Yeah, it's degrading for a man because it makes you like a woman, which implies that being a woman is inherently a degrading thing. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So even if that graffiti is entirely 100% by women, that's still quite, Mm. like... Yeah, like, even a woman taking ownership of her sexuality, and there is one piece that says something like this, which we specifically know is from a woman because she uses feminine words to describe herself. Mm. Even a woman taking ownership of her sexuality and saying, like, I did this and I liked it. Is significant. Yeah. Because yeah. she's not just a passive partner who is having sex done to her. She's saying, yeah, I did this. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We do also have a few examples of graffiti on Pompeii that perhaps don't outright tell us about equal loving relationships between men. And I don't mean to say that the previous graffiti we've talked about proves that these men were having, like, equal sexual relationships with other men, but I think they point to it more than the assumption that every sexual act between two men in Rome was a man penetrating and person of inferior social class who didn't have much choice in the matter. Yeah, there's, like, nothing in those other graffiti that suggest that, like, you can't read into that and assume that they were of unequal social status or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, we do have a few examples that suggest also that there could have been more affection in some of these relationships than the general understanding of Roman male relationships and Roman sex as an act of male power might imply. We have one piece of graffiti, for example, which reads, Fonticulus pisciculos sua pluruma salut, which means warmest regards from the little spring to the little fish. These are both specifically masculine words, little spring and little fish. Okay. So the diminutives, while they don't necessarily indicate an equal male-male partnership, I'd argue that the fact that they're both described with diminutives does suggest perhaps a level of equality in their relationship. That's at least a degree of affection. Yeah, yeah, at least a degree of affection. Like, you know, obviously all this is speculation. Are the little spring and the little fish, like, necessarily romantic or sexual? Would it be weird to talk about your, like, little brother? They're not specific Roman words that I'm aware of. Like, it's not like in French you call your love a little cabbage. Oh, yes. French do that. (laughs) (laughs) Or like in English you might say, like, pumpkin, for example. I don't think (laughs) that's not any weirder than cabbage, now that I say that. <laughs> the point I'm making is I'm not aware of any kind of tradition of calling your love a little fish, for example. Oh, yeah. Or any tradition of little fish as a specific term of endearment. From what mm. I understand, it's something that this person has written. Yeah. And it's just the thing that they call possibly their lover. Yeah. I guess, like, look, one of you being the pond that the other swims <laughs> in is not, like, unevocative, you know? <laughs> yeah. 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 I also do want to mention one famous piece of graffiti, which is generally interpreted as being about two friends, and I don't think we can definitively make a statement that that's not the case, but I like it and I thought I'd share it with you. (laughs) (laughs) So it's written by the door of a bar, and it reads, We, two friends for eternity, tarried here. If you ask for our names, they were Caius and Aulus. Yeah, regardless of whether or not that's a display of romantic affection, it's just nice. very sweet. Like, I can definitely picture that Caius and Aulus got drunk here and had that, like, drunk overflowing of love that people get. Yeah, and then they wrote it on the wall. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and then they were like, we must commemorate, like, having the best night with our best friend forever. 
So all of this, which, as I've said, is mostly speculative and circumstantial, but is by way of saying that these two men, the supposed two maidens who were not maidens, could have been lovers in the way that the newspaper implies. You know, there's a possibility that those relationships existed in Roman society. Mm -hmm. But there is a lot more context to Roman sexuality as a whole than newspapers give us. And I don't think it's good historiography to just chuck out, hey, they could be gay lovers without acknowledging the broader social context that that must have existed in. I don't know if it is actually the worst idea, though. Like, how bad is it for the general public to read a headline that's like, these two ancient Romans could be gay lovers? Like, giving people the general idea that gay lovers have been a possibility for thousands of years is not that bad. That's true. It's not a bad thing. It's not a bad thing. But I think, you know, it is generally important to give an accurate image of history. Yeah. I don't think that's a contentious statement. (laughs) But moving on from that, I want to talk about why gay lovers is the immediate conclusion once we find out they're probably men, but was never raised when we perceived them as women and why we just kind of have ignored women's sexuality in this conversation the whole time. So to quote Stefano Vanacore, who's the head of the Pompeii research team, he said, when this discovery, so talking about the fact that they're probably men. When this discovery was made, that they were not two young girls, some scholars suggested that there could have been an emotional connection between the pair. To quote autostraddle writer Siobhan Ball, who put it better than I would, Nobody thought of lesbians when they believed the maidens to be women, not only because softness and touch are the provinces of women, but because women aren't imagined as having a sexuality independent of men. Yeah. Yeah. That's it. Siobhan's right. So obviously there are major flaws in the assumption that two women hugging wouldn't be queer and in the assumption that two men hugging would be queer. And we've talked about the fact that obviously this was their dying moments and they would have been aware of that. Yeah. So that kind of gets rid of any social mores about who you hug, I would say. Yeah. On top of that, there's no reason to jump to the conclusion that in Roman society – Things that were appropriate for men in our society were appropriate for men then, or things that were inappropriate for men in our society were inappropriate for men then. I was going to ask, do you know anything about, like, how socially acceptable hugging is in ancient Roman society? Because definitely, like, I know here, especially in social circles around, like, our age and our queerness, hugging is just, like, incredibly common. Like, I will hug people on my first meeting with them kind of thing. That's true. And that's one of the things that I would have liked to look into more if I had more time on this episode to see what the, like, Roman mores around hugging were. Unfortunately, in the brief time I spent on Google Scholar, I didn't find a convenient article about this. But I think it's worth noting that, for example, like, it was perfectly okay for a Roman man to cry in public. Yeah. Which is not really okay for a man in our society. So there are things like that that we and people going into this and saying, oh, they're hugging must be gay, assume are just masculine and that's just how it is that 2,000 years ago were totally different. Yeah, there's no reason to think that ancient Roman, like, friendships between two men didn't involve a lot of hugging. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. And probably there's some studies that, you know look into this in more depth that I haven't read. But I guess the point is it's important not to just assume that masculinity has always looked the same, just because some aspects of it look the same. Mm. I think there is, like, there's often a tendency, and I think it's the, you know, it's the fallout from that entire thing where for 
the whole like renaissance period people thought of classical rome as like this is what we have to get back to these were our better (laughs) ancestors you know there's this tendency to think of western and let me be clear that i'm putting that in quotation Mm -hmm. marks western is a fake construct that like western culture is a direct descendant of Mm -hmm. ancient roman culture yeah in a way which it just very much is not that's just not true it's just not true like obviously roman culture has influenced our culture we can't deny that, but yeah. there'd be many other influences too. Yeah, like you may as well think that, I don't know, we're the direct descendants of Norman French culture, which nobody yeah. has ever said and would be a weird thing to say. <laughs> but it's absolutely true. <laughs> People do refer to like Anglo Saxon culture. That's yeah. true. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah. an example. Yeah. Um, but yeah, and equally, you could say that many cultures around the world were influenced by Roman culture, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah but like there's the- no there's no reason then to think that the same social mores are always going to be yeah, passed yeah. on. You know? It's just it's just because our history class goes Rome to England. Yeah, they're like, we're like Egypt, Greece, Rome, England, Australia. That's it. That's what you got. <laughs> <laughs> just because you put one of them in the syllabus after the other one doesn't mean that they like yeah. naturally formed into that country. Like, what do you think? <laughs> yeah, Egypt, yeah. Rome, and England—they're all in different places. <laughs> Something yeah. must have happened in between. Why aren't you telling us? Yeah, 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 yeah. Absolutely. So the other thing that is pretty obvious, and we've kind of mentioned several times, is the complete failure to consider that queer women exist. They do. And that two embracing women, like, while we don't have any specific evidence that they were gay, could also have been gay. Yeah, like, The Telegraph could have been publishing could-be-gay-lovers articles literally since 1914. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I wish they had. That would be great. That would be great, but they didn't do that. So what you're arguing for here is, like, equal opportunity sensationalism. (laughs) Yes. No. (laughs) (laughs) It's not what Alice is arguing for. It is what I'm arguing for. (laughs) Siobhan Ball describes the attitude of the newspapers in just really honing in on the possibility of gay men as self-congratulatory smugness at their own liberality. They're so caught up in being proud of themselves for, you know, considering the possibility that these people were gay and also conveniently getting a titillating headline out of it, that they forget to even consider that there are other types of queer people in the world, like women. Also trans people, like, there's nothing stopping these two people with XY chromosomes from being women. That's true. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Or intersex. That's also something that's not discussed very often. Yeah, Yeah, like, the fact that we've had that scan doesn't actually tell us that, oh, we were wrong, now they're men. Yeah. It just gives us some, like, more biological information about it. It just means their gender is as indeterminate as it was before. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, there is overall, and this is definitely something that has influenced the way this is reported on, as well as the general erasure of queer women in the world, there is specifically a silence around queer women in ancient Rome. I remember asking you about this when you did the, like, male sexuality in ancient Rome episode. I was like, what about women? And you were like, I'm sorry. (laughs) (laughs) So I found some more things since then. Are we going to do a Roman women episode one day? I would like to sometime, yeah. I'll tell you some of the things now, but I'd like to do a whole episode on Roman women's sexuality. Yeah. So the reason we don't know much about the sexuality of Roman women is obviously because most of our sources were written by men. Ah, yes. When Roman men do mention female-female relationships, which they do very occasionally, they're almost exclusively very damning about them, and they view them as evidence of women who are debauched, they're unfeminine, and don't have self-control. That's actually very interesting, because I'm quite used to encountering circumstances where... It's not that, like, men think relationships between women 
are a bad thing. It's just that they literally don't care. They're like, this isn't obstructing me. This isn't emasculating me. It does not matter to me. Mm. I think the thing with Roman understandings of it is we go back to that Roman understanding of sex as as penetration with a penetrative partner and a receiving partner. Yeah. If there are two women having sex, they go, well, there must be a penetrative partner. And then they go, well, if a woman is penetrating, that's inappropriate and that woman is debauched. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 Is there also the possibility that just the idea that there isn't a penetrative partner in a relationship, like you talked before about Canidas referring to also the state of not being in control. Mm, mm. And so if two women are sleeping with each other... Then then who has the self-discipline? Who's flying the plane? (laughs) (laughs) Generally in the examples I've read where Roman men talk about Roman women having sex with each other, and there may be some that I don't know about, they do paint one woman as penetrating the other in some way. Yeah. Yeah. Like, that's not surprising. It's just, yeah, yeah, I just thought of that given what you'd said earlier. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, They do still see it as a penetrative I mean, not cool. Really terrible. Uncool. Yeah. Yeah. Um, But, like, lack of imagination around sex, just like in society in general, always gets me. I've literally had people come to me and be like, but how do women masturbate if they don't have a penis? And I'm like, literally just figure it out. Put your hands down there and figure Figure it out. out. How are you so short on like imagination information about your bad sex education that's yeah 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 it doesn't have to be like putting a thing in a hole yeah yeah well you can go and tell like Gaius Aurelius that yeah I will write to Gaius Aurelius (laughs) (laughs) Uh, but yeah when we say that queer as fact is around the world and throughout time (laughs) we mean that we will travel back in time to speak to Gaius Aurelius yes it just (laughs) Always gets me the way that people see, like, a relationship between two women and the only way that they can conceptualize, like, physical intimacy in it is by, like, mapping a heterosexual coupling onto it. Yeah, 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 yeah. And that's absolutely what happens in ancient Rome and why they're so horrified by it, because they've had to put a woman in a man's rock. Yeah. And that's not okay. Yeah, they're like, I just decided that this woman was the man, and then I was appalled by what I had thought. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, exactly, exactly. I mean, that's a classic uh, conservative talking point thing, right? To just, like, invent a person and then be horrified by them. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. absolutely, absolutely. So the first century poet Martial, for example, writes about a woman named Philanus, and the opening lines of his poem are... The lesbian Philanus, and I will mention that, like, the word that I've translated here as lesbian refers more to the act of having sex with women than an identity, but a woman who has sex with women. Yeah. The lesbian Philanus pegs boys and, more savagely than a lustful husband, pokes, or, like, stabs, or, like, it's a penetrative word, essentially, girls in daylight. Hot. Carry on. <laughs> but it's worth noting that he also says, like, she pegs boys, which he's seeing her as playing the male penetrative role. Yeah. Yeah. It's like not so much what she does is have sex with women, it's what she does is penetrate. Yeah, 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 exactly. He goes on to talk about how she exercises in the gymnasium and she eats and drinks in excess and she wrestles and she does all these things that are not appropriate for women to do. She does sound hot. She also goes down on other women. <laughs> I would go to the gymnasium. <laughs> Sorry, carry on. She also goes down on other women, is what I said. <laughs> and, um, okay, so you weren't, like, changing the tone of this no. conversation at all. Marshall specifically says that she goes down on women, but she won't go down on men because she thinks that's unmanly. Which, to a Roman man, going down on a woman is maybe the most unmanly sex act. Yeah. 
And the closing line of the poem is, may the gods give you a penis, Philanus, since you think licking a cunt is manly. And Williams, Craig Williams, who I mentioned before, the scholar of Roman sexuality, argues that what they're sort of saying here is, in talking about who she'll perform moral sex on, is just how far she is out of Roman sexual norms. Like, not only will she do these things, but she doesn't even conceptualize them in the way she's meant to. So it's like, may the gods give you a penis so you can, like, figure this out. (laughs) Do it properly if you want to be a man so much. Yeah, that is really interesting, because, yeah, you often see that thing where, like, queer and trans people throughout history try and adopt and mimic and replicate the existing gender roles just in a different yeah. way. Mm, mm. But this is very much like at that other sort of genre of queer identity yeah. of rejecting completely yeah. the standards that society has set and being like, no, I've made my own standards and they're different and yeah. screw you. Yeah, yeah. we're well, yeah. like, even if we take this poet at his word exactly. Like, this hypothetical woman, Philanus, has, like, figured out which sex acts she enjoys, and it's pegging people and giving oral <laughs> sex, but, like, only... But only not to, but not yeah. to dicks. Yeah, giving yeah, oral yeah. sex, but not to dicks. And that's just, like, what her sexual preferences are. Yeah. And it doesn't fit into... Into yeah. the Roman model, yeah. Yeah, it's not that Philanus is a man, it's that Philanus has particular sexual preferences. Yeah, and they can't map them onto the Roman model of sexuality, and so they're just kind of appalled by her. They call on the help of the gods to sort it out yeah, then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I should mention, and I don't probably need to mention this, that as a person who has studied Latin, I feel the need to mention it, the word that I translated as pegging is the same word that they use to talk about a man, like, penetrating someone anally. I translated it as pegging because she's a woman, but it is the exact same word. Okay. So... Are we to assume that there were ancient Roman strap-ons, though? There were ancient Roman strap-ons, yes. Okay. Yeah. And that's most likely what they're referring to here, but, like, they don't specify. There was a specific city, I can't remember what it's called, there was a specific city that is specifically famous for dildo production. Oh my god, I was really hoping that's what you were going to (laughs) say. Was that just one of those, you know how historically it's not that uncommon to have like one industry small towns, like fishing towns and like lumber towns (laughs) and things like that. This was just the dildo town. I guess so. I don't know many facts about this. Ah yes, the ancient Roman city of Dildaeus. (laughs) (laughs) Dildanium. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So this description of Philanus is pretty standard for the way in which Roman men talk about Roman women who have sex with women. They view them as debauched and they just kind of just don't know how to deal with what's happening and those women are considered masculine. That said, I don't think I need to prove to you that there were obviously women who were attracted to women in a variety of ways in ancient Rome and yeah. not necessarily who fell into the model of like penetration and sex as power that Roman men like to think about. Yeah, it's almost <laughs> like gay people exist outside of the stereotypes that people <laughs> writing about them perpetuate. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's true. So we are very lucky with the Pompeian graffiti that it gives us what I think maybe, I'm not 100% sure, maybe the only first person account by a Roman woman of a relationship with a Roman woman. I'm so excited. So it's a um, poem which is written in a hallway in Pompeii. And it opens, Oh, if only I could hold my gentle arms around you and press my kisses on your tender lips. Go now, girl, confide your joys to the winds. And I just want to mention here that I didn't do this translation because I had three hours to do this episode. (laughs) But the word they translate as girl, pupula, is much more kind of endearing than the word girl. I've seen it translated as like babe or pet or that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. And it goes on, believe me, flighty is the nature of men. These things I've often meditated, lying awake in despair in the middle of the night. 
And despair here, the word for despair, also implies kind of lovesickness, that kind of thing. Okay. And it goes on in this vein, a woman talking to a woman about how men are flighty and inconstant and how she wants to kiss this other woman, basically. Okay. And it's not so clear in the English, but in the Latin, like, there's no question that the speaker is a woman. Yeah. Archaeologist Antonio Soliano, who wrote the excavation report when this poem was discovered in the late 1800s, says that it is one of the few examples, if only example, of female-female love poetry in ancient Rome. In the 1800s he wrote this? He did, yeah. Oh, good job him. Yeah. yeah. He did yeah. write that. He didn't read that and was like, oh, look, they're best friends. Yeah, yeah. So there is another scholar, and I'm sure he's not the only one, who have argued that while the two opening lines about how I want to embrace you and kiss your lips are addressed to a lover, the following lines, including the word pupula, which I said might be translated, for example, as babe, are the woman addressing herself and trying to talk herself out of trusting fickle men. Why is it so common (laughs) that when people come across, like, love poetry about women and things like that, like Mm. lesbian love poetry or whatever, it's so common for people to be like, oh, no, she's writing this to, like, another aspect of her own personality. Because there's no other woman. It's just her, like, talking herself up. Because they're homophobic. Because they're homophobes. But that's just such a stretch to do. Like, I can see how you would look and be like, oh, no, this is just an intimate friendship. But why would you be like, oh, no, this other woman doesn't exist. She's talking to herself. Mm. Yeah. She's mentioned another name. That's just another aspect of herself. (laughs) (laughs) The they were just friends argument is kind of like weak, but a lot of the time it holds up. Like, you can't prove if they were just friends or not most of the time. The... She's talking to herself in this line where she mentions a woman, but talking to a man in this line where she mentions kissing someone. It's like, how hard are you trying? Yeah, it's like you had to tie yourself in such a knot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Another piece of Pompeian graffiti, which is less clearly queer, but also may possibly be a woman expressing her feelings for another woman, reads, Chloe greets Eutychia. Eutychia, you don't care about me. With a firm hope, you love Rufus. So obviously this could be written by Chloe, who's just upset that her friend Eutychia isn't hanging out with her because she's got a boyfriend now. But it also does seem to, like, directly contrast Chloe and Rufus. You don't write graffiti about it when your friend gets a boyfriend. (laughs) (laughs) Unless you were crushing on your friend. Although, to be fair, as we've discussed, Romans wrote graffiti in a much more chill way yeah yeah that's true romans write graffiti about everything like and like yeah. that is the kind of thing i would expect to see in the bathrooms at yaya's that's even true in a, yeah. even in a not gay way that's yeah fair. yeah absolutely yeah. and like there is that famous piece of roman graffiti that tumblr loves which is literally just like april 19th i baked bread oh, yes. <laughs> you know romans will write graffiti about anything yeah but you know this could just as easily be a woman who is interested in eutychia and is upset that eutychia is interested in a man yeah. And I think that's a pretty valid reading of that. Yeah. So there definitely is evidence of female-female sexuality in Pompeii. Mm. And the only reason that we never heard the possibility discussed that the two maidens were gay is because people forgot that women can be gay. Forgot is a very generous word to use there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I feel like in some instances it is forgot, and in some instances it's actively yeah. Rejected. But, but I feel like even if it's that you literally forgot, like, that literal forgetting is based on a fundamental dehumanizing of women, right? Yeah, absolutely, like, yeah. you know, removing agency from them. Yeah, yeah, like, I will not forgive someone who forgets women can be gay. Mm. Yeah, even if they weren't actively like, they could have been lesbians. I hate lesbians, though. I'm not going to write that down. If they just, it didn't occur to them. That's not acceptable. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I, I know that obviously that is what you think. I just <laughs> wanted to, like, get one more punch in there on yeah. homophobes. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. 
Something that struck me was, so in 1914, this man was like, oh, look, they have feminine shapely legs. This is two women. And we're like, that is stupid and laughable. The shape of your legs does not indicate your gender in any way. And then literally almost 100 years later, we have another test, which doesn't really indicate your gender, but the response is the same. We're like, a huge chunk of people are like, oh, okay. This is something, like, physical fact about them. Yeah, yeah. And, like, obviously it's laughable to us today to say, oh, so they were hugging and they had kind of shapely legs. They're women. That's all you've got. And at the time that – I mean, obviously there would have been people who disagreed. But at the time that was probably seen as a pretty solid argument. Hopefully in 100 years they'll look at that and be like, what, you found out their chromosomes and you assumed their gender? That's laughable. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I think I just wanted to sort of draw attention to how those things are more similar than they look. Yeah. We're like, oh, no, this one is science. Yeah. No, I hadn't thought of that, but that is a a very good comparison. Mm. Yeah, Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you both for enjoying this last minute episode on something which wasn't even queer. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm glad to hear about Philanus. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there definitely was queer content Um, in here, even if the supposed two maidens were two men who... Yeah. We yeah. will never know who they were. Even if I sometimes hope- we have to bring the queer content ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 And I hope we've learned something about like critically analyzing the newspaper articles we read with sensationalist queer claims. Yeah. Rather than just accepting what the telegraph tells us. With that, we've been Queer as Fact. I'm Alice. I'm Irene. And I'm Jason. If you enjoyed this episode, you can find us on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you get your podcast. And we'd also really appreciate it if you would rate us and leave us a review, especially on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps us to reach a bigger audience. If you want to check out our social media, which this week will hopefully be filled with pictures of crude Pompeian graffiti, you can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr as Queer as Fact. You can also email us directly at queerasfact at gmail.com or if you want to, you can also write to us by snail mail and you can find our P.O. box if you want to write to us on our website, which is queerasfact.com. Our website also has links to everything I've just mentioned and we're in the process of uploading sources for all our episodes to the website. You can also support us financially if you want to. You can buy our merchandise on Redbubble or you can become a patron and you get various perks as a patron, including some free merch and the chance to vote on the topics of some of our episodes. Which there will be a couple of polls coming up before the end of this season. That's very true. And if you want to support us but you don't want to give us any money or you can't give us any money, just go out and tell your friends how great Queer as Fact is or share us on your social media or anything like that helps us to teach more people about queer history. Seriously, it's really delightful. We get occasional sudden bursts of downloads and... We have to go and, like, trawl through Twitter (laughs) to figure out where they came from. (laughs) Yeah, and it's just really nice to know that someone has shared our podcast with their own little audience of people in their own little corner of the internet, and some of you have enjoyed it, clearly. We respectfully acknowledge the peoples of the Kulin Nation and pay our respects to their elders past and present. We acknowledge and uphold their continuing relationship to the land on which this podcast is recorded. We'll be back on the 15th of March. Our schedule's a bit up in the air right now, so I can't tell you what we'll be talking about, but tune in then to find out. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.